Happy Sabbath, everyone. Is that working? Alrighty. Well, I have a. I've been studying something about the sanctuary, and it's just a really incredibly important topic. And so, you know, I don't have, like I said before, I don't have a lot of time to study, especially now. I got four Bible studies going on. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of time to study for one thing and for myself and then something else for, you know, something else in the congregation. So you're stuck with a sermon for whatever I'm studying. So <laughs> that's, just, that's just what it's going to be. But uh, the sanctuary is something... When I grew up, I grew up in a different church. I grew up in the Worldwide Church of God. And uh, we believed in the Sabbath, but we also kept the Holy Days. Um, and th- there's some other differences. Uh, but we didn't really keep, or we really didn't study or think about the sanctuary at all. You know, and, and a lot of Christians these days, they see the sanctuary and they just kind of throw it away because it's Old Testament stuff. Um, but where there's, there is so much involved with the sanctuary. So I, I thought that this would, you know, the more I study it, the more engrossed in it I find myself. But when I went to um, Hera, they have uh, the Oklahoma Academy up there. And Messiah's Mansion is based out of there. And to see the life-sized, full-scale replica of the replica, because right, the sanctuary is the replica of the heavenly sanctuary. So this is a life-size replica of the replica. <laughs> and to see it and get to walk through it and to see it in person is just amazing. And it is a long drive, but I highly recommend it. Um, and it, it is just it is just a real blessing to go to see. Uh, they don't have it all the time, but they have it again coming up the first week in October. Uh, they're going to have something called the courtyard courtyard something i don't know courtyard thing so they're going to actually have sermons in the courtyard of the sanctuary which i think which i think would be really neat so i don't know i I need to go up there and see that one just because i went to a couple around when they did passion weekend and those were really good those were really good sermons and just getting to walk through it and and see it all is really amazing um so before we get started on the message just uh, bow your heads with me real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask you to be with me during this service, to the, during this sermon, that you use me as your mouthpiece, that I say your will, that I say your words. Ask that you be surrounding the congregation so they may be understand what you have for them out of this message and that they may apply it to their lives. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, where I want to start is, uh, and I actually did not have time this week with everything I had going on to do very many slides. So, I hope you brought your Bibles because we're going to have to open them and walk through them. Now, there's a few that I can probably just turn to and, and read real quickly myself, but this first one we're going to start in the Psalm 73. And so if you'll turn your book to uh, Psalm 73, this particular uh, psalm was written by Asaph. And, you know, most of the psalms out of what, the 150 psalms, like almost 70, 75, almost half of them were written by David. But this particular one was written by Asaph. And what he's struggling with here is 
being righteous compared to the boastful and the wicked because they seem to be prospering. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 3. It says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? doesn't seem very fair when we see people succeeding in the world and when we're trying to be righteous and we're being, uh, you know, uh, struggling. So let's jump to verse 12. It said, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Right? So he's sitting here. He's struggling with this. He's seeing all these people. They're, always, they're ungodly, but they're at ease, and they're increasing in riches. Everything seems to be going for them. And yet, here I am trying to be, trying to be clean, trying to be righteous, and I'm being plagued and chastened. Well, his, he found an answer. And in his answer, we can find in verse 17, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Yep. So, so the sanctuary is what brought him relief and understanding of what's actually happening. Why are these people doing so well and going to the strip clubs or the bars and doing all this stuff and get increasing in riches? But we know that those people aren't necessarily really happy or they're, delus- they're deluding themselves or they're under a delusion. And... Asaph found the answer in the sanctuary, which is what brings me an even greater understanding of how important it is for us to understand this sanctuary. Because the more we try to be righteous and chastened, or the more we try to be righteous and cleansed, we will be chastened. We will, be, we will have struggles. Uh, just like I said, to, to, to pray for all these people that we're doing Bible studies with, because these people will get attacked and they will feel like maybe it's not worth it. But the answer is in the sanctuary. So, first I want to look at the sanctuaries themselves. Let's look at the, the well, we had three, four different sanctuaries. Uh, the first one was the wilderness sanctuary. And we can find that in Exodus 25. So, we'll go to Exodus 25. And uh, we got a couple verses there, so go ahead and get there. Exodus 25 and verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And we're going to read in verse 40. Verse 40 says, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. It's interesting right there, God already knew. Make them according to the pattern. So he already knew there was going to be more than one. But um, we have the building of the sanctuary in Exodus 36 through 39. And God told Moses to build this. And he gave them a pattern, uh, something to go off of. And part of the reason was for God to be able to dwell with the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness. Let's jump to Exodus 40 and verse 34. Exodus 40 and verse 34. 
And it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled, the ta- filled it. So, here we have the Shekinah glory actually going into the, the, the sanctuary and putting its blessing upon it. So now, this was the traveling sanctuary. This was the one that they would actually take down, travel, set up, take down, travel, set up. Now, once they actually made it through the 40 years in the wilderness and they made it to the promised land, they built a permanent structure. Now, David wanted to build this structure, but we know that his son Solomon was was the one that was going to build it. Now, we call it often the Solomon's Temple, and the Bible even calls it the Solomon's Temple, but we know that's a misnomer because it's God's temple. It's, it's God's temple that, that we, we have built there. Now, they built it in 1960 B.C., and let's go ahead and switch, jump to Second Chronicles. And uh, let's see. Actually, I could read this one for you guys. This one's not a big one. But we see in Second Chronicles, in, in 6... Uh, or actually they were building it in Second Chronicles 3, 4, and 5. And Solomon prayed for the temple at the end of Chronicles 6. Now, I'm going to read Chronicles 7 and verse 1 and 2. And it says, When Solomon had finished praying... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So again, here we have the Shekinah glory coming down and filling the sanctuary, and just just filling it to the point that the priests had to almost evacuate, that they couldn't even be there. Now, we know, if you studied your Bible, that at some point going through here, Israel suffered from apostasy, okay? And God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy this temple and to destroy Jerusalem and put a lot of them in slavery. So King Nebuchadnezzar did this in AD, uh, B.C., 586. And Israel was held captive for 70 years, now, the promise was after the 70 that they were going to re-inherit their land, they were going to re-establish and build their temple again. So the third temple was built in 515 B.C. And we can read about that in Haggai 2. That's one of those little ones that I sometimes jump over. Let's see if I can find it. Nope, jumped over it. <laughs> Haggai 2. All right, so in Haggai 2, I'll read verses 6 through 9. And what's, what's very interesting about this temple, this third temple that was built, is that this third temple never experienced a Shekinah glory. The, the glory of the Lord never came down into this temple and filled it. So it's almost as if God didn't quite approve of this one. In fact, Many of the people who saw this temple after it was being built, after they built it, 
They cried and they wept because it was not as good as Solomon's temple. They knew this. This third temple was not as, as blessed as the Solomon's temple. So here we read in Haggai 2, 6-10, through 10, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So he's saying, I will, in a little while, in a, in a time, I will fill this temple with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple, notice he didn't say this temple, he says the glory of this latter temple shall be glo- greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. You know, it's funny because the Jews are still trying to figure out how or if this prophecy was ever fulfilled. Because, well, they're actually thinking how it was fulfilled because that temple is now gone also. But he says that God will fill the temple with glory, but there was never a Shekinah glory that filled it. But we know what was meant here, right? We know that the glory he's going to fill it with was Jesus Christ. And that the latter temple that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. And his glory, according to Scripture, was veiled. So it didn't, it didn't fill the temple and push everyone out like the, like the prior two temples. And we know that he brought peace to this temple because he was the Prince of Peace. So now this temple, this third temple, was actually beautified and remodeled and enlarged by Herod the Great. It took 46 years for him to work on that. And we're going to read in John 2.20. John 2.20. This is, this is what I'm technically calling the fourth temple, because, but it's not really a separate temple. It was just remodeled and beautified and enlarged by Herod the Great. And so uh, in 2.20, it says... Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And so we're finding each of these three temples in, or four temples in, in, in Scripture. We see the wilderness temple, we see the temple by Solomon, we see the temple that was built after exile, and we see this Herod the Great temple, and we start seeing these hints of this greater temple. But what we want to look at is what these sanctuaries actually represent. What did these sanctuaries symbolize? What did they, you know, were they, were they just something that God used to dwell among us? Or did they represent something bigger? What was the reason for them to, to, to God, for God to instruct us to build it? Well, I believe that it was a sim, symbolic of the heavenly sanctuary, right? That there is this massive, huge sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary that he was remodeling, that he was making us a model image of so that we could learn lessons from it, so that we could understand God's greater truths from it. And the more I find out about these greater truths, the more I'm just like, wow, how did I ever miss the sanctuary? You know, how did I ever miss this? But there's so many lessons. And because of that, this 
sermon will only be an overview. I'm going to talk and try to entice everyone with everything we can learn out of the sanctuary, and then we're going to turn this into a series, and we're going to go into some of these in detail, and hopefully you're looking forward to it. If, if not, you can just, you know, boo, stop. <laughs> but anyway, we'll go. Uh, let's, jump to, uh, let's jump to Hebrews 8, and we have several verses in that one. And uh, what's, what's interesting about this is there's so many people that, and Christians, good, good-natured Christians that have the best intentions, but they say the sanctuary was the Old Testament. And yet, the last, the last verse I read was New Testament. This one's going to be New Testament. We know that the Bible has the sanctuary in the New Testament. And it's a critical piece of the New Testament. So let's read in uh, Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. It says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man, who is this who is this talking about? Jesus. So when we so when we say that when people tell us that this investigative judgment doesn't happen or that God Jesus isn't in the heavenly sanctuary, I mean, how can you read these verses and say that? For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one this one with a capital O also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So, is the sanctuary something that we don't need to worry about because it's gone? Not if it's a pattern of something much bigger, a pattern of something in heaven. That seems like it's something we need to keep studying on. So in Hebrews 9, let's jump to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 verse 11 and 12. It says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So again, here we are, another lesson from the sanctuary, and we see this direct correlation between what the earthly sanctuary was and what the heavenly sanctuary was that the earthly sanctuary was a shadow a pattern a a model of the bigger sanctuary notice that the true tabernacle the heavenly sanctuary is the more perfect sanctuary that one is the perfect one that is the one not made by hands this earthly version is supposed to be just a scale model. It didn't matter if it was life-sized or table-sized. It's still only a model of the bigger one. 
These, these earthly, what I found really interesting is that these earthly temples represent lots of other things. It's not just the earthly temp, or the heavenly temple. We also see that the earthly sanctuary represents our body temple. So let's jump to 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians six. First Corinthians six and verse nineteen and twenty. So we're gonna see here that the sanctuary temple relates to our body temple and to how we're supposed to deal with that and the lessons that we're supposed to learn about our own be- our own bodies. Verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God with your body and in spirit, which are God's. So in this case, the Shekinah glory is even in place because the Holy Spirit is the 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 being that is in that temple right so the shekinah glory is the the holy uh the holy spirit within us so another thing that we can see is uh we'll see that the the sanctuary has lessons about the body temple of Jesus i'm going to read in john 2:19 We know that if we have a body temple, Jesus has had that same body. He had that same body temple. But the sanctuary teaches a little bit differently about His body temple because obviously He was without sin. He overcame temptations. He was more, more perfect. In John 2, verse 19 through 21, Jesus answered, to the, answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's why we can raise it up in three days. So it says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. So we also are going to see in Ephesians 2, we're going to see an illustration of the sanctuary being the Christian church. If I can find Ephesians... Ephesians 2, 19 and 21. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Now notice he's the chief cornerstone, but he's not the chief cornerstone of a physical building, right? We can't dig up the corner of this building and find Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone of the spiritual church, what we all make up as the church. We're not bound by these buildings. We're 
church, we're, we're Christians. He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the whole building, all of us combined, grow to create a temple for the Lord. It doesn't matter if the devil came and knocked this building down. As long as we can get together and meet, we will continue to grow as a temple for the Lord. Now, there are some people, I've had a sermon uh, prior that we talked about the Antichrist sitting in the temple or sitting on the throne in the temple of God, right? Now, some people say that they're talking about Jerusalem. So the temple in Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt and the Antichrist will sit there and they're waiting for that. And if they continue waiting for that, they may wait too long because we just read that the church grows as the temple of the Lord. So is this Antichrist going to potentially sit in the throne of the church to present himself as the head of the church and to try and lead the entire church astray? I think so on that one. But we can look at that further. Now, what I want to do is look at the geography of the sanctuary. And I do have some slides on that one. I actually have the entire sanctuary in what they call Google SketchUp, which is a 3D representation. So I can actually move around. I can actually, this is a 3D view, and I can actually move around this thing and take it apart and and look in it and change it and things like that. So first, we have the camp. That's where Israel lived. That's where the sinners were. Now, the camp was much bigger than I was able to depict here because the more items you have in there, the more the computer's going, So right now I just have a camp on the outside, but there were thousands upon thousands of tents and tens of thousands of tents, and this is where the sinners were. And the camp, a lot of times when we talk about the sanctuary, we start with the courtyard and then the holy place and then the most holy place, but the camp was a very important element of it because the camp was where we all are. That's where the sinners were. That's where all that is. So we'll go into that later. But um, there there were three tribes that camped at each cardinal direction so there was four you know north south east west three tribes at each one made up the 12 tribes of israel and there's interesting because there's some discussion on how they were arranged all of the big tribes were arranged on one side and all the small tribes were on the three other sides and it kind of could be presented as a cross which is interesting. Now, I don't know. There's nothing in the Bible to to support that. It's just an interesting thing to think about. Um, But of course, then we have the the court. Oh, here's the entrance. The entrance was to the east. It was always to the east. A lot of times, if we read in Ezekiel 8, I believe, uh, the people of that time when they were pagan worship, they would bow to the east because they would be uh, worshiping the sun god. So in this case, we actually have the interest in the east so that as we go in to worship, we are actually, okay, I made it face the right way. If we go in from the east because the door is here, then we're facing the west and the sun is always to our backs in the mornings. And so we weren't worshiping the sun god. It was deliberately designed that way. Now, then we have the courtyard, and when you came in, you'd, you'd kill your lamb. You had to kill it yourself, of course, because it was your sin. You had to put, ask for forgiveness and put your sin upon him. And then we had the uh, altar that they would, uh, the burnt offer sacri- sacrifice. 
and then we'd have the laver. Those were the two key pieces of, of furniture, was the altar of sacrifice and the laver. Now, then you would go into the tent proper, which is the holy place of the sanctuary. Now, this is the first section. Only priests could go here. And we have to the left, which is the south side, we would have the seven-branch candlestick. Now, this is pure gold, 120 pounds. And it was always full of oil and always burning. It would never burn out. And it it represented the, the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was called the seven spirits of God. Now, now to the right, we have the north side, which is the table of showbread, right? And the table of showbread has 12 loaves of bread on it, representing, huh? One for each tribe of Israel, but there's a lot of other, so it was bread, the bread was the word of God, right? Or the word of God was your bread. Uh, The also thing was that uh, some people, I've heard some people argue uh, whether or not, are all the books of the Bible in there? Or how do we know all the ones that are supposed to be in the Bible are in the Bible? Is there more supposed to be in there? But it was interesting, the table of showbread, before the Bible's even complete, the table of showbread had 12 stacks of bread, 6 and 6. How many books are in the Bible? 66. I thought that was kind of interesting. So we see these correlations and these tie-ins. Then straight ahead, before we go into the most holy place, we have the altar of incense. And the altar of incense is where our prayers go to heaven. And so that all incense was always burning 24 hours a day. Now then you have the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And there's only one piece of furniture in this, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant above that sat the Shekinah glory of God. And then the, the, the uh, cover of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And you have the two covering cherubs. Now inside the Ark of the Covenant, we have the, table, the two tables of commandments, the Ten Commandments. So we have the law of God underneath the mercy seat. We also have a pot of manna which is a whole nother sermon just on itself. It's very, very symbolic because this is the manna that fell for 40 years in, in the wilderness and it was always in this Ark of Covenant and always sustained. And then finally, we have Aaron's rod. And this is the Aaron's rod that budded miraculously by God to, to depict who was going to lead the Levites. So, now we come to our, which uh, another interesting thing is uh, Sabbath school actually just had uh, something to do with Aaron's rod. <laughs> so we have uh, 1 Kings 8.27. I'll turn to that. That's the, um, the scripture reading for this morning. 1 Kings 8.27. And it says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. 
Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel that when they pray toward this place, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So you notice that this earthly temple, God is looking upon it, but where is God? In the heavenly sanctuary. He was, so was this sanctuary just built so that God could dwell among us in, in Israel? Well, no, because God wasn't even still there. He, he, nothing, it can't contain God, that little, that little thing. <laughs> that little scale model. But he was present with his spirit through there in the earthly temple. The earthly temple we read here was far inferior to the heavenly temple. Far inferior to this much bigger representation that actually exists in heaven. In Acts 7, we see an example of Stephen speaking here. Again, New Testament speaking of the sanctuary. We go to Acts 7 and verse 47. Acts 7 verse 47. 47 through 50. Acts 7. For Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet says. However is my throne, or heaven is my throne, and earth my, is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So again, we see that it's silly to think that God built this sanctuary only to be a place for His dwelling. He can't fit there. The earth is His footstool. <laughs> We're going to fit him in a little sanctuary. No, it doesn't work. Now, we already read Exodus 25.40, but it's basically saying that made, he made the sanctuary according to the pattern Moses showed in the mountain. So it's a, middle, a, a, a miniature, a model, right? If we, have, if we have a map of Oklahoma, which came first, the map or Oklahoma. Oklahoma, right? <laughs> we didn't have a map and then we go, okay, let's put together Oklahoma. No, we have Oklahoma, we have cities, everything is built, and then the map is created and it has everything in a representation, a smaller version of it. It's just like a picture. If I take a picture of somebody, now unless I blow it up on a big screen, a big baby picture on a big screen, it may be bigger than the original. However, it's two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. It's only a representation. It's only an understanding of what that picture represents. It's not the, the thing itself. Is everyone satisfied that they saw the picture of Deli's baby? You don't need to see it in person, right? You don't need to see Deli's baby anymore. Oh, you still want to see it in person? Because that was the... Rep- <laughs> right, because... Because this was just a representation. It was just a picture. It wasn't the real thing. We all want to go to the heavenly sanctuary and see the real thing. I'm going to go and see the one in Hera, Oklahoma, probably again, because it's amazing to see 
only so that I can envision the heavenly sanctuary because I can't go there yet. If we go another week without getting to see Deli's baby, we'll have to put another picture up here because <laughs> we're going to want to see him again, right? Because we're going to want to see him again until we can see the real thing. So the Bible says that the earthly sanctuary was a shadow of this heavenly sanctuary. In order to be a shadow, there has to be a reality, right? If you see a shadow on the ground and it's walking around and there's no reality, there's a problem. There's something to be very scared of. So what's more real? The shadow of the reality or who that which projects the shadow, the reality is. What's more real? The picture or the person of the picture. So the heavenly sanctuary is very real, but it's huge. It's immense. We can't even fathom how big it is. The Bible tells us that millions upon millions upon millions of angels are in the sanctuary. I can't even imagine how big that could be. Not to mention, God is so big Himself that He uses the earth as a footstool. So, so how big does this sanctuary have to be? I want to read in 1 Corinthians 13.12. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. So now I, so it's saying I see in a mirror dimly, but face to face, it becomes more apparent, it becomes more known. Now, one thing we can do here is we can talk about the Messiah's calendar. We have all of the various feast days. And Deli has talked about all this a lot in his sermons. And one thing that I think is very interesting is when you start relating that calendar to the sanctuary. Because the, the calendar tells us the timing of how things happen, but the sanctuary really unveils and lays out what's going to happen even farther. So they go hand in hand. They work together. Let's read in Leviticus 23. As we see them working together, we get a greater understanding of what these are. And these, these uh, festivals, these festivals are a shadow of what was to come and what is still to come. So Leviticus 23, verse 1 through 3, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So here we have it talking about the feasts and the Sabbath and how they belong to God. Now there were four spring feasts and there were three fall feasts. And it's interesting because you have the first, you have the fall feasts, and then you have this long summer of nothing, and then we have the fall. And so, where are we at? We're somewhere in the summer, right before the fall, because if we were in the fall, 
Jesus would already be returned. But first we had in the spring, we have the Passover. The Passover represented the death of Christ, right? Because what happened on Passover? We would sacrifice the lamb. We would kill the lamb. Uh, and it, the, all, it, it represents in the, sac- in the uh, sanctuary as the altar of sacrifice because they would kill the lamb and, and uh, sacrifice him there. Then we have the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is the second day, and that represents the burial of Christ. Then we had the first fruits, which was the resurrection of Christ. And that's represented in the laver, in the laver of the, of the sanctuary. Now, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus rose the first fruits of those who went to sleep. Right? So, 50 days after the first fruits, we had the Feast of Pentecost. So, the Pentecost came 50 days after the first fruits, and it represents the intercession of Jesus in the holy place of the sanctuary. So, the entire holy place, that first room, is represented in the Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Bible tells us on this day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was poured out because Jesus had begun his intercessory mission in the heavenly sanctuary. So that was where in Acts they started praying and they prayed for 10 days and the Holy Spirit was prayed out because that was when Jesus Christ ascended and he went into that holy place. You know. So now we come to the, the fall festivals. Now, the fall festivals, we had the Feast of Trumpets and that announced the beginning of the heavenly judgment. That announced the beginning of the Day of Atonement. And now, if we're, when we study out the sanctuary, we're going to know that that last day, right before everything happened, everyone still can repent on that last day. And if you can repent and get rid of all your sins and become at one with God, then you would be saved. If not, you would be stricken down. And that ultimately led to the Feast of Tabernacles. And like I said, growing up, we went through all of these all the time. I always liked the Feast of Tabernacles the best because... What we did was we took two tithes. We have one tithe that went to the church, and we have one tithe that went to the bank. And the first tithe was 10% went to the church. The second tithe was 10%, and we saved it. And we spent the entire 10% that we took in second tithe on the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was seven days, and you spent tenth of your income, and we just had fun. And, of course... We had fun, but as kids, part of it wasn't fun because you'd have sermons every day. <laughs> but we'd usually go to a fun place like Florida or something like that on a vacation. You spend one-tenth of your income on everything. And what the Feast of Tabernacles uh, represented was the millennium, the millennium in heaven, where there was no worry, there was no anything else, which was so why it was so important for us to save one-tenth of our income to go into the Feast of Tabernacles because we didn't want to go into it with a credit card because that wouldn't be a feast of no worry. Because <laughs> that credit card tends to want to call you and want the money back. So you have to save the money to go into it. So how important is the sanctuary? How important are we finding the sanctuary in all these different elements? The book of Daniel is seeped in sanctuary te- uh, terminology. Particularly chapter 8 when we start talking about the little, little horn and where it talks about the sanctuary being cleansed. There is a reference 
in Daniel 8 specifically that refers directly back to Leviticus chapter 16. We've been reading in the book of Hebrews and we see that the book of Hebrews from beginning to end is an illustration of what Jesus has done in the sanctuary. You can't understand Hebrews without the sanctuary. So we wonder why some modern Christians may have trouble understanding the New Testament. Some of it's because they discount the Old Testament. And so we have to look at the whole Bible. We have to look, understand the whole thing. The book of Psalms. There's no way that the book of Psalms can be independently read and understood without the sanctuary. There's so many Psalms that were read as a part of the feasts and a part of the different things that they would do. The book of Revelation. Revelation is covered in sanctuary, in sanctuary techno, uh, terminology. Technology. In sanctuary terminology. You can't understand Revelation without understanding the, uh, the, the sanctuary. In fact, let's jump to uh, Revelation. And we're going to hang out in Revelation for a little bit. So if anybody's given up trying to keep, with, keep up with me in the Bible, we're going to be in Revelation for several verses. So we're going to jump to Revelation 5. Revelation 5 and verse 6. Revelation 5 and verse 6 says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we have the lamb that had been slain in the center of this this, uh, scene, and... uh, it says that which were the seven spirits of God. Or remember, the seven hold the seven branch candlestick represents the seven spirits of God. This, so we have all of this correlation that's happening. Let's jump to Revelation uh, one, and we'll read twelve and thirteen. Revelation one twelve and thirteen. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girdled about the chest with a golden band. So again, here we have seven golden cans, seven branch candlestick specifically uh, uh, marked in the, in the book of Revelation. Let's jump to Revelation 8. Let's take a look at Revelation 8. Revelation 8, verse 3. Verse 3 through 5. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. So, here, if we go back right here, the guy in the most holy place. You see that little uh, thing he's holding? He's holding with the incense coming, burning off of it. That's what you call the golden censer. So, he was actually having the golden censer, and he would cleanse the sanctuary with the golden censer. And here it is in Revelation. So again, Revelation 8, verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, oh, uh, 3 through 5, yeah. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake. So 
Here we have the altar of incense. We have the golden censer. We have all of these things uh, playing out. Let's jump to back to Revelation 2. Revelation 2 and verse 17. Let's jump there. Revelation 2 verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Where's the hidden manna? In the ark. In the ark of the covenant. Which again is a part of the model of the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, Where was I? Lost it. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written on it which no one knows except him who receives it. So Revelation 11. Let's take a look here. Revelation 11 verse 19 Revelation 11, verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. So again, which temple is this? This is the heavenly temple. And the ark of the covenant is there. Revelation 15 going through these quickly. We'll have another sermon later that will go over some of these things more in depth. Revelations 15, 5-8. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels, seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So again, here we have the element of the close of the sanctuary. There's going to come a time when the service is done. The day of atonement is over. And the, tabernacle, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles will begin to start. And what we don't want to do is run out of time. The probation will close. There, it will come to time when it's too late. The sanctuary service will come to an end. A time of tribulation will come. A time of plagues. It says that no one will be able to walk into that temple until all the plagues have played out. That's when there will be horrible things happening here on earth and the probation's already done. It's closed. There's no, more, there's no more asking for forgiveness. So we need to make sure that we're always right with the Lord. The, book, the revelation... Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The days of Noah. Uh, everyone mocked Noah. Noah pre- preached for 120 years. And he walks onto the ark and God closes the door and everyone's still mocking him. For seven days it didn't rain. Look at that guy. He must be sweating in that ark. And then it started to rain. First raindrop, second raindrop. It started pouring. It's too late. You can't get on the boat anymore. In fact, we're going to find that Revelation follows the exact order 
of the sanctuary when we go through it. It goes through it in cycles, but it always follows the exact order of the sanctuary. And we must understand this sanctuary to understand several books. We need it for Psalms. We need it for Daniel. We need it for Hebrews. We need it for Revelation. We need to understand the sanctuary. If you look in your bulletins, I put a couple of quotes from Ellen White about how important the sanctuary is. Do not just you know, toss this information away. It's very critical. Now, one of the last things, do you know that the sanctuary also presents step-by-step each step of life of Christ, the, the ministry of Christ? John 1, 14. I'll read that real quick. John 1, 14 says, and this talks about the camp. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here, do you know the word dwelt, when we look at the original Greek, the word dwelt here actually says to pitch a tent. He actually came down here and lived and pitched a tent. He became a part of our camp. He came to live in our midst. He came, he goes into the court to die at the altar. He was the Lamb. He came and lived a perfect life so that His sacrifice could be accepted for all of us. So that we could put our hands on His head and confess our sins and be forgiven of them. Hebrews 4.15 This is one of my favorite verses that I've read several times. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we know that he lived in the camp with us, but he was without without sin. He never had sin. Uh, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. If I can find that. 1 Peter 1, there it is. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So, Here it speaks about the death of the unblemished lamb. Who was the unblemished lamb? Jesus. He first came to live with us, then he came to die. And the next thing that Jesus does is he intercedes for us in the holy place. I'm just going to back up to Hebrews again. Uh, Hebrews 7 verse 25. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says... Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, Jesus went to heaven and went to the holy place to be our intercessor, to be our advocate before God. 1 John 2.1 speaks about this stage of the ministry of Christ. The most holy place is described in 2 Corinthians. Actually, I want to read 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 
2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's, that's serious. We're all going to be before God. He's going to... It, it, it's talking about the judgment in the sanctuary. And we know in the sanctuary service this happened once a year. And each of us have to come before Christ. Each of us have to make our, 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 ourselves known to Christ in front of the judgment seat in the most holy place, which is where the law was kept. And each of us will get what we deserve based on good or bad. After Jesus performs His work in the most holy place of the sanctuary, the Bible tells us that He will take off His priestly garments and He'll return to earth as King. We can see that in Revelation 19. It's my last reading. Maybe not. Revelation 19.11 Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And let's jump down to verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, one, another ceremony is going to take place after this in chapter 20. Have you ever heard about the scapegoat ceremony? That last ceremony? Uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We know in the sanctuary service, they take all the sins, they put upon the scapegoat, and they send him out all by himself, all alone. You know, all alone to die in the wilderness. You know, the sanctuary actually explains every single one of our doctrines in the Bible. It is the great magnet that brings everything together and, is the, and it holds it together. Does it show the character of God? Absolutely. It shows that God is justice and that the law demands death. But God is mercy because God takes on the judgment Himself. It shows His justice and His love. Does the sanctuary present the doctrine of sin? A- absolutely. How many millions of sacrifices were done in the sanctuary? It shows that the wages of sin are death. Does it present the humanity of Christ? Absolutely. What, what's interesting is when we have the humanity of Christ and we look at the sanctuary, the sanctuary was very plain from the outside, but inside, inside it was very ornate and beautiful and had gold and fine linens. The outside was very very plain and comely. Who does that sound like? So does it describe the humanity of Jesus? Absolutely. Does it describe the perfection of the life of Christ? Priests could not have any blemish. The lamb could not have any blemish. They both had to be perfect. Was death revealed in the sanctuary? Absolutely. Forgiveness revealed in the sanctuary. Yes, when you placed your hand upon that, that, that lamb or your sacrifice and you confessed your sin and, that blo- and then you killed the lamb and that blood was taken, you knew that you were forgiven. You felt forgiveness. Was the priesthood of Jesus 
in the sanctuary. The priest would take the blood into the holy place. Was the importance of the study of Scripture represented in the sanctuary? Absolutely. We have the table of showbread, the two tables, the two stacks. We have six and six, the 66 books of the Bible is prayer. The altar of incense represents prayer. Is the importance of the church shedding the light of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit represented? It's in the seven-branch candlestick. Is angels presented in the sanctuary? That's a really interesting topic. I'm really thinking my next sermon will be about the angels being represented in the sanctuary. The doctrine of baptism is represented in the laver. The Trinity is represented in the sanctuary. We have one seated on the throne. Before the throne is the Lamb as though He had been slain. And also we have the seven-branch candlesticks, which is called the seven spirits of God. So the Trinity is in the sanctuary. Tithing is represented in the sanctuary. Tithing is the one that sustained everything, that whole operation. We, and we don't even have some of these. We have big doctrines that are covered. We have small doctrines that are covered. We have the judgment. We have the cleansing of the sanctuary. We have the law represented in it. We have the sanctuary represented in it. We have the healthful living. The manna was to teach the, the people of Israel that they needed a simple, healthy diet and lifestyle. The state of the dead is represented in the sanctuary. So, ultimately, there is a lot covered in the sanctuary it's all covered there and so it becomes a critical piece that we need to study it's a critical piece that we need to understand because we can't understand these things without understanding the sanctuary so with that bow your heads with me and we'll close Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word, to learn about Your sanctuary, to understand how intricately woven the truths of the sanctuary show us all of Your truths. How related to everything that they are, to, to everything that You've taught, to Your heavenly sanctuary, to the doctrines God, we we understand and we see the importance of this sanctuary and that there is so much that we've only just talked about the surface of how how much it relates to everything. There is so much to be learned. God, we just ask that you continue to lead us and guide us to help us to understand your word, to understand these lessons you've provided, to give ourselves willfully to your will, to accept the death of the Lamb, forgiveness of our sins, so that when we face Jesus in the most holy place, to be judged based off of what we did in accordance to the law, that we may be found not guilty. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.